All right, I want to thank everybody for joining us for this episode today. Today, I have Justin Herman, who is the Global Head of Public Sector at Twilio Incorporated, a member of the World Economic Forum, and he is a co-chair of the ACT-IAC IoT Working Group. Previously, Justin led the government-wide Emerging Citizen Technology Program at GSA, where he supported and coordinated citizen services, initiatives in artificial intelligence, social media, robotic processing automation, and other areas working with about 300 federal, state, and local agencies. Well, I was a part of that. That was great stuff. Really I, stuff. <laughs> it was cool stuff. I remember participating. It was, it was amazing. Uh, he's also served on the White House National Science and Technology Council Subcommittee on Machine Learning and Artificial Intelligence uh, for two different administrations. He's a world traveler, food connoisseur. I've been following your, your postings there on the food you've been cooking. And then he's also been known to participate in, the, uh, in an interesting or crazy excursion or two. So Justin, I thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. So for those who don't know you, even though I gave that wonderful you know, uh, background information, tell us a bit about who you are, where you're from, and what makes you you. All right, uh, so actually when I first met you, uh, I was at US General Services Administration at the time, and where I spent about eight years uh, focusing on building those government-wide emerging technology programs, so we'll get into. Uh, originally, when I was brought into GSA, it was to be the head of social media. Uh, and basically, by that means, find, and this is when it was nascent and new in government, to go in, find where the pockets of excellence were, find where the great pain points were, and build that collaborative community that can then work together uh, very rapidly to address immediate challenges and, and build strongly for the future. But in a strange way, I've whether I want to or not, I've always been doing uh, that kind of work. When I was, uh, so I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, in fact, if you've ever seen the movie, What About Bob? Uh, with Bill Murray, that takes place in Lake Winnipesaukee. Uh, I grew up on Lake Winnipesaukee. Uh, I had a graduating class of 23 kids. Uh, and that was for like multiple towns uh, right there. So it gives you an idea of just how small town I was. And around, you know, junior high, is when the internet came to our school. Uh, and for me, it was so exciting. I loved to you know, read and you know, fiddle around and, and you know, try to do minor programming with my computer. But once the, once the internet came and it opened that door uh, to new ideas and connectivity. And so I designed my high schools for a project. I designed our first website uh, for the high school district or actually, cause it's kindergarten through 12th grade in the same building. Uh, so it was actually all school. That's small town. Uh, That's a real small town. But because like nobody, I think we were the only ones in town with the internet at the time. So I got to leave Easter eggs and like uh, I had just left the high school band. And so on the band page, I put the George Bernard Shaw quote, uh, hell is full of musical amateurs. <laughs> uh, and it didn't have to be an Easter egg because people didn't have the internet in my town. So I got away with a lot, but it really kind of stoked that passion on what's possible when you start merging communications and technology. Uh, so when I went to school uh, at university, a lot of what I focused in is, again, is whether I was working at publications, you know, editor of the school magazines and newspaper. It, and this was back when there was the first online newspapers, uh, mm -hmm. in a sense. So it, in a way, I kind of grew up with that technology side by side with it. Uh, and also, it kind of had the, 
the effect of it's been a long time since I've had a job, even since college, that existed before I took it. Uh, because it was always on that growth of where is the intersection of technology and communications. So when I became an Air Force officer, I originally wanted to go into like Intel or something. Nope, they were like, you're going to be a public affairs officer because wow. they had seen just what I was doing with communications and technology so much. And so again, did electronic publications in the Air Force. And I got out and, you know, like a lot of veterans, it's very difficult sometimes to find that next step when you first get out. And especially because we, you know, first batch of post 9-11 era veterans home. So I had a lot of difficulty at home and finding that next transition. And somebody in Boston uh, took mercy on me and was like, you need to go to Washington, D.C. Because that's where your background isn't going to be an oddity. Uh, and I left for Washington, D.C., and I remember I had $350 left to my name and no job and no place to live waiting for me. <laughs> I was just, you know, wow. I had to make it. And I've been here ever since. Uh, fell in love with, I mean, I've always had the love of public sector, of public service, um, and not just having a mission, but to be able to support others that are passionately dedicated uh, to using whatever they've got, whatever tools, resources, um, and some of the obviously best people that, that are out there in the workforce uh, and help them to get that done. Uh, and of course, I mean, I just love the city itself uh, in general. So I've been here ever since. And that's when eventually I was recruited into GSA. And as they say, the rest is history. Um, because then part of it, again, is it's never a lot of times it's not the technology that's the limiting factor. It's how we're sharing information. It's data sharing. It's all, you know, it's all the connectivity and if not, could almost be said the culture of the technology in organizations is often the limiting factor. Uh, and so that's why the work never gets old. It never gets stale. It's always vital. Um, and it's, it's, it's a forever changing. And so even when you're doing the same role for a while, every day you don't know what's coming next because you're evolving with it and everything's so new. And that's what led me eventually to Twilio was I kept looking and hearing what those needs were for those, you know, 300 federal, state, and local agencies we were supporting. And we knew that, you know, it's, it's, it's a real shortcut to thinking uh, and cheap to say, oh, well, government is always going to be 10 years behind the curve on technology because they just don't get it. Um, and that's utter nonsense is that oftentimes for good reason, there's rules, regulations, and same level of responsibility. A company has to do the right thing and go through the processes to become available for public services. And same as public services do have to keep an eye out on what the field. And I thought, where is the greatest place that if we could marry these two, and the concept of omni-channel communications was so new uh, within government. And I was like, this is the team I wanna be with. Uh, and this is the mission. I mean, if we can bring that level of omni-channel communications that get used every day in the private sector, but introduce it to make public services more accessible for all, 
um, and not just not just accessible for all and, and not just for most users, but all users, whether you know, persons with disabilities, multilingual services, uh, limited bandwidth internet, but also make those interactions actionable and digestible for operations. You're not just facilitating a conversation, you're improving the services themselves and operations itself. That's the that's to me, it's even just saying it now still gets me as excited as I was on the first day. You can tell, you can tell. So, so you, you kind of exposed a bit of what my second question is, you, you know, my, my, my second question is, you know, how, how or why did you get into IT? So it sounds like you kind of naturally fell into that would be, would that be an accurate portrayal? It fell into me or I fell into it. Uh, definitely. And again, there's been a couple of times in my, in my career, I tried to try something new. Uh, but this is why this is what the heart the heart wants what the heart wants and also right. and again it's just it's such an important place to be when it sounds like you know based on everything you've had an opportunity to work with uh, and do and the the variety within IT sounds like it's very exciting to you uh, would that be true i mean in terms of like there's there's such a robust like you said there, every day it could be a new adventure right write your own adventure well, look at what we were doing at, you know, working closely with ACT-IACT, uh, agency partners, U.S. General Services Administration, is in building those government-wide emerging tech programs, oftentimes still would be seen in a, is in a bubble and each thing in a stovepipe. And what was often needed, what was the practical application? of mm -hmm. this. It's not just checking a box. Does this have machine learning or checking a box? Does this have robotic process automation? But to what ends? Mm -hmm. And that's something that, especially with omni-channel communications, is that it has components of all of this. But what it does is it puts together into something that truly transforms your day uh, in the most practical way possible. And you're not even aware that you're using all of these very interesting and you know very complicated <laughs> very high-minded emerging technologies you just know that no matter where you are what device you're using or what your need is you're able to get done what you needed to get done uh, seamlessly um, and for me again that's the most exciting point and it exposes some of the the challenges that we can have in, in government technology in particular when oftentimes it's not the best technology that wins the day <laughs> Right. But checks the most boxes. Interesting. So then if you had the, you know, somebody gave you the executive power or the, the ability to make a large change, what do you see that we're doing that isn't focused in the right direction and could be, could be changed or something about IT that we're doing that just needs to be reconsidered? So when looking at it, and, and this is something in my experiences both in the private sector and obviously working amongst government agencies is we can always do better on data-driven decision-making and not just saying that as a cat, you know what I mean? A catch-all or a buzzword is that locked in these conversations, and not just in conversations, let's take communications out of it, is that there's always so much more information that we can be using to make actionable and digestible for operations. And oftentimes we don't scratch the surface enough and decisions are being made, you know, and I, every day I'm, I'm talking to my friends, you know, again, not even dealing with communications, but just working across the board and public services and the challenges they're faced. So much decision making is still being done at the end of the day on gut feelings or, you know, biases added into it. 
And isn't it, who is it that said that if you torture data long enough, it'll tell you anything? There's been a few people to say that and they do yeah, it, right? Uh, yeah, a lot of people have said that and it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, but this comes down to, you know, not just performance analysis. Um, across the board, we could be doing much better ways. And I, I remember when I was at GSA, this often came up and people would say, well, you know, if you try to put performance metrics into this, it'll squash innovation. <laughs> That's such a cop out. I agree. Uh, because I believe that it is robust data analysis and performance management that allows you to take the risks, allows you to be more creative um, because you're able to weigh the options, because you're able to point forward. Uh, innovation doesn't mean just doing things and throwing spaghetti on the wall uh, and seeing what fails or not, because you, can, you might be able to do that you know, in a small hackathon, but public services are a trust. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility, especially with taxpayer dollars, to at least try to get this right. Uh, and that's, I think, something where we can always constantly do better. And there was a time when they kept saying, like, data scientists are the sexiest new job uh, in government. We can do better than that, though. That's trivializing it in, in such a way where it becomes a literacy issue. Um, and I mean, if we talk about where things are going, and I, and I know that's, I just led into probably a question you were going to ask, is where we're going with this is that these technologies, these solutions won't just be in the stovepipe of an organization only of specialists. It's a literacy issue here uh, that needs to continue to grow. And you can see this with low code or no code solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that, I mean, I was not the world's best person when it came to designing uh, machine learning. Uh, but what we said back in government at the time was, in order to own a car, you don't have to be able to build it from scratch, but right. everybody should know you can tell if it's functioning or not. You're able to do basic upkeep and you're also able to know responsibly when something isn't performing the way it needs to perform to take it to the shop for someone who does know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what I want to see more of. And I know it's going there, which is, you know, we used to say the democratization uh, of the technology but on a basic level, it's, it's, it's raising the literacy, um, not creating haves and haves nots. And I'm also particularly sensitive, I think, about creating cool kids clubs uh, in government where we're presenting outwardly and inwardly that there are only some people that hold the fire. Uh, and that doesn't benefit, I think, much uh, on that front. So the more that we can raise literacy, the more that we can be inclusive, create opportunities uh, for more voices, more ideas, um, and more active participation in the solutions, I think ultimately the better it's going to be. And do you think that's because of a lack of investment in the underlying places where we're storing data? I mean, I'm in government. I've been, this is my fourth federal agency, and I, I, I'll be quick to say we really suck at stovepiping things, right? We, we, we create these monolithic program specific applications or, or data sets, and then we don't know what to do with them, right? Well, also one of the challenges is that the amount of what you have, your data is your power source. Right. Well, we would see this oftentimes like in organizations that needed to implement cross-functional, you know, like multi-stakeholder platforms uh, and programs that would fall to pieces. 
And people would say, well, the technology must have been, we'll have to do another RFP to get another platform. <laughs> and it's like, it's, no, it's not the technology that's the right. issue. It's that you don't trust each other. And if you're deriving your power from people needing to access you, rather than making this more flat and transparent, uh, there is no technology that's going to help uh, with that solution. Mm. Uh, and so that's why, like, again, raising the literacy, making more opportunities to participate. I was always a big fan of the shared services model. Uh, and that's a massive opportunity in government where rather than recreating a unique thing, I just said recreate a unique thing. It's what <laughs> should be replicable, the commercial off-the-shelf product. Right. And instead, they're designing and they're not interoperable. It's this entire thing. So the more we can have the shared services model uh, as well, I think that's going to just, just instantly benefit. I would agree. So then... Well, you answered my last question, which is where you see the future and where we need to do to get to the future, which I think is phenomenal. And I agree. I would agree with you, of course. So then any, any other thoughts that you might want to share with us? I mean, Justin, you've been around, all right? You've been around the block, uh, highly respected in this space. Is there something else we should focus on as well that would help maybe push that along? I mean, is it, is it policy we need to put in place or is it breaking? I mean, how, would we, how do we break down barriers to, to make it so that agencies aren't just appointing a chief data officer and calling it a day. So speaking in general terms on this, uh, without calling anything out, uh, <laughs> I'm about to share an anecdote that is going to come as absolutely no surprise to anybody that worked that has worked in government, uh, which there's an organization that can put out policy memos that have teeth to them, can encourage agencies in order to compel agencies to look at, invest in, and report in things. But, and so when we had emerging technologies rolling around or this iteration of the unending cycle of them in history, uh, we needed fast and rapid guidance out to agencies. And they would turn around and say, Justin, it's actually can take us six months to two years to put out one of those memos. And by the <laughs> time that we do, it's gonna be obsolete and we're gonna be look like we were caught flat footed. So then they turn around and say, well, we're not gonna issue these because it would stifle innovation. <laughs> it was not going to stifle innovation in any way. It's because the actual mechanisms of the bureaucracy didn't allow it. So then there's talks of we need a new memo system, but that's it. Like again, is what we've got to do is to be able to speed up, be more nimble uh, on this and more responsive because and again it's not a problem with tech it's how we all work together and the speed of change and the speed of you know what i mean transformation is happening so rapidly even if you know something one day uh if you're still working on that same thing without changing even months from now uh forget about years um it's going to be obsolete it's almost guaranteed and so if i could laser focus on one thing with the government itself on how we could better prepare for it. It's not just, yeah, obviously acquisitions is challenging. Obviously, you know, having government-wide security postures uh, is a challenging thing. But tightening, the thing that crosses over all of this is the responsiveness and flexiveness enough for us, whether it's the smallest guidance memo uh, to the largest update to be able to iteratively put this out, not have to wait for the perfect thing <laughs> that takes two years, but just be able to say that the sky is blue and water is wet uh, without it having this monolithic, you know, 
like 2001 A Space Odyssey, the giant stone <laughs> probe. You don't need that to be able to let agencies know that it's okay that they're testing out machine learning uh, or robotic process automation. But as you know, a lot of agencies might not take an initial step on something without the top cover. So faster, more responsive top cover to be able to respond, to be able to know what kind of, what kind of performance metrics people are looking for. I, we ran into that a lot, which was people afraid of if they were working on something publicly that either Congress would look and think it's wasteful and wipe it off the map or the White House uh, or OMB. So I would go and, you know, whether it's automation or AI or, or anything that we were working on, people would almost secretly be working on it. And so all these agencies would be doing it, but no one would be talking about it. And you can't find it on their websites because they didn't want to be called out for it. Right. So we'd go to things. And I remember someone said, you know, one of the last meetings I took before I moved on, they said, uh, AI won't be anything real in government for another five years. And I think I had just left the White House National Security, National Science Technology Council AI subcommittee of everyone working on it. And there was this huge disparity between what was important going on and what we could publicly talk about, and not because of a clearance, not because right. of security restrictions, because of fear. Uh, and again, no technology is going to remove that, but our ability to share information. If I could get, uh, you know, performance.gov only needs to be more. Uh, you know, and it's, I know beta.sam.gov is in the course of trans, you know, transition and transformation. Platforms like that are so critical uh, to be able to find out what's going on, to be able to prove it, and not based on anecdotes, but based on, this is publicly available information. Like, right. this, this, this isn't debatable. You can't, if it's paid for by taxpayers, as long as there's not a security issue, People have a right and responsibility to know what's going on. And not just because they have a right and responsibility, it's the right thing to do as well in order to improve things. No, that's, that's a lesson to be learned, right? That's the lesson for the times. If we can get past those hurdles and get the right people in place that give us the freedom of, you know, we, we, because we know our stuff, we know our performance, we can take that risk. And I think that's- Well, I've got a question for you, actually. So you're a leader uh, in Act I Act. I, I'm now going to be helping put together the IoT working group. I've got some thoughts on it. Smart cities is something that we care about a lot. Obviously, post-COVID, the entire idea of a new digital government fully connected all the way out to the street corner is going to be critical in new ways. But from your perspective, what are some things that you think we should be looking at, uh, even structurally, in order to make this real? Oh, wow. Turn in the tables. Turn in the tables. So I, I, think, I think what you guys are working on is amazing, right? I think the smart cities, I think you're right. The, the, the capabilities we have to educate our, our pu the public of what, you know, what the government knows and how that can, better, they can be better leveraged by them, whether it's accessibility through um, in, interesting initiatives that will help somebody know how to get across town uh, by avoiding crowds because they, they yeah. happen to be blind or something, right? Or, or other really interesting um, emerging tech capabilities, it, it's all gonna be reliant on cities, especially in the city, in the city perspective, perspective, 
they need to put in place the networks that can support that, right? Either yes. you know, 5G or, or whatever the, the magic solution is, we need the bandwidth, right? We need the connectivity and we need it kind of everywhere. And I mean, many, many cities are suffering in that respect, right? They have lots of great initiatives, but they don't have the way to do the connectivity between the capability to keep, make that capability accessible to everybody. Yes. So I think, I think that's something we need to focus on. Uh, you know, that's not my expertise. My level of expertise is, is not at that level, at the city level, but having conversations with DC government and a lot of other uh, uh, cities that are struggling in that area uh, and are, are really trying to do some innovative things. Um, you know, technology can be a blocker as much as people. And some of it is, you know, we got to make the right investments at the right time so that then it opens up that innovation yeah. uh, capability, I think. I'll tell you one aspect of it that, that really, really wakes me up in the morning on it. And I, I think it goes to the potential. So something, so this hasn't been released yet, um, but given our experience working around the globe right now, post COVID-19 um, and started truly identifying what are those trends on, on how things are shaping up. So I'm working on a new digital government strategy um, that takes, cause you know, it's not just a digital front door. And I figure I can do this because I worked at the Office of Digital Government for so long. <laughs> so I do have my bona fides on this, but we work so hard to get agencies to be able to have such a, an accessible and responsive front door to government. But what we need now is the complete virtualization of public service and the public experience. And it could only be done through, you know what I mean? New methods and ways and connectivity and data sharing. And it's not just citizen engagement. It goes from the smallest, because workforces are now virtualized. Right. So this has to, the digital government experience must go and start from the smallest um, work stream between people, agency to agency, through, you know, contact center modernization, citizen engagement, all the way out to the sidewalk with IoT and smart cities. Oh, that's something Twilio is specifically working on? Yes. And in fact, uh, we'll look forward to, I was going to present it to the World Economic Forum, uh, but because uh, we're helping with ACT-IACT, uh, I think that this might have to become an ACT-IACT uh, initiative. Interesting. So you've come up with a methodology for virtualizing that that government to citizen experience? Is that, is that what? Yes, that's... That's what's being worked on right now. And I, and I think what it's, it's both exciting, but it, it also becomes formulaic because there's no surprises there. It's when you look at a model that's connected from workforce modernization, citizen engagement in an agency, and then stretching now to the sidewalk. Now, if we had said that a year ago, that you need IoT and sidewalks and stuff for public services, you'd have been like, not this year. Uh, maybe that's a, a nice future state thing. But now it makes complete sense. And it's not just that these things are needed, it's showing how they interrelate. And again, that's where we come to the real challenges on making the data actionable and digestible for operations that one feeds into the other, and it's the interconnectivity. It is one digital government experience, not stovepipes, not replaceable instantly. So that's something that, that's what's keeping me up at night these days. Uh, and I'll tell you, a lot of a lot of great people inside and outside of government have been very passionate about sharing their ideas and stories around that. So that's something that we're looking forward to to, to contributing. Yeah, it's fascinating. I look forward to seeing a presentation on it. That's I, I agree with you completely. I mean, and and my agency works with uh, governments overseas. Right, my agency is a is a grant a grant 
type agency where we're doing economic development activity overseas uh, in, 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 you know, really fairly, uh, you know, undeveloped countries. And so uh, some of our stuff is around policy. How do you engage citizens? How do, how do citizens trust you? Yes. Right? That's a huge problem, getting citizens to trust the government. I was just talking with uh, somebody from the IRS the other day, and they're talking about how do we fix that last segment of the population who don't want to stop receiving a paper check from the U.S. government. But that paper check causes so many high-level costs on how to manage, create, and send out. How do we get that last mile of people onto an electronic platform, right? And then it comes down to some of it's some of it's uh, it's an underserved population. They don't have capabilities. Yeah. So how how do we how do we serve government to those people? And the other and the other issue could be just plain up trust. They don't trust the government. And they don't want to interact with them electronically. Well, I, I I'm going to propose this here. And because obviously this is something core to a lot of what we do is, I mean, I, I was the lead for social media, you know, in the federal government. We had worked very hard to try to bend the platforms, <laughs> hold them accountable to be able to have a trusted platform for engaging citizens, providing emergency information. I think it, it, it's not wrong to say that that might have, that ship might have sailed a little bit. Yeah. Um, as things grew and the market changed, this is why, in fact, when, when I first heard about Twilio, uh, in the modern times, because I, of course you always knew about them, but our CEO was giving an interview where he talked about the direct experience. Mm. Now, if where someone should be able to elect and say, I want an SMS, I want an email, I'll like, however you, it's not just an agency having more options for sending out. It's that the person can self-select right. what they want and how they want it. And also increasingly, you can get this verified in the same way that you have the blue check mark on Twitter, you're now able to get logos from mm. a phone call that could say veterans affairs, social security. You know how many times I still get robocalls from the social security administration? <laughs> right. Right. And it's like, listen, I've got gray hairs in my beard, but I'm not there yet. Uh, and, and they still come. The idea that we have to go through middlemen upon middlemen, in, that each stage, government information, critical information to people's well-being and standard of living, has to go through multiple stages of middleware that are also incentivized through advertisements to spread misinformation side by side with each other. Or citizen can elect to receive directly how they want, how they trust it, with increased security on it. That's what things are bringing. That's what we need to be on it. And I know it's a little provocative for the former head of public sector, not public sector, of, of social media, to say that it got away a bit. But I think in that vision that we had of improved customer service and bringing in that level of customer service to the citizen experience, uh, we have to grow. And when I say we, I mean the whole public sector, whether inside or outside of government, we have to know that those platforms have changed. We have changed and there are better ways out there. The direct citizen experience uh, is really, really what's at the table right now. And I think really will do wonders for mitigating and minimizing so much 
of, of the conflict uh, of information sharing. You shouldn't have to share government information during a national emergency, let's say, and have it compete side by side with something that's completely and utterly fabricated, yet is given the same weight on a person's homepage. Mm -hmm. That's irresponsible. No, I agree. Well, Justin, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk through these really interesting, really good problems, right? Things where government and industry can work together to solve true problems for our citizens. And I, I thank you for that. I thank you for bringing that thought leadership. And I look forward to hearing more as you continue down that path. Well, we're always working on it, Jeremy. And again, thank you so much. Uh, and to actually everyone out there, because uh, I know we have a lot of friends and colleagues and, and a lot of new people at the table, you know, keep heart. Uh, everyone out here is cheering you on and the work that you're doing every day for people everywhere. Uh, we might not get to see each other as often as we might want to, but we're all pulling for you out here. So thank you. All right.